Welcome back to WWC Podcast. I'm your host, Will Wright. And today we're diving into the incarnation another week uh, in a row. Last time we talked about the incarnation, specifically what is it? What do we mean by the incarnation? What is the hypostatic union? What does it mean that Jesus Christ is true God and true man, fully God, fully man? So if you haven't listened to part one on the incarnation, on the mystery of the incarnation, the miracle of the incarnation, uh, I highly recommend that you go do that first and then come back for this part two. But I figured it's right before Christmas. Uh, I'm recording this and I'm going to post it on December 21st in the evening. So we're getting very close to uh, the celebration of the nativity of the Lord. So from me to you, Uh, Listeners, wonderful listeners, Merry Christmas. Uh, You might not hear that a lot. Maybe you're hearing happy holidays out and about, but we all know the reason for the season, and it is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who 2,000 years ago condescended to become one of us, share in our humanity so that we could share in his divinity. And so today we're going to be looking at the effects of the incarnation. Why does the incarnation matter? Why does it matter to the world? Why does it matter to us and specifically to you and to me? Um, So I hope that this is an intriguing episode. I hope you enjoy it. And I hope it helps you enter more deeply into the mystery of Christmas. So without further ado, let's dive in. So today we're diving into the miracle of the incarnation. What were the effects of the incarnation on Christ and on us? How did the world fundamentally shift 2,000 years ago? And uh, I know last week was a fairly deep dive into theology. Today is not going to be as heady. Um, So hopefully, uh, hopefully everybody was able to kind of keep up with all the terminology and things of last week and uh, this week as well. So let's begin with the fittingness of the incarnation according to Aquinas. So St. Thomas Aquinas asks a series of really cool questions about the incarnation in question one of the third part of the Summa. And in this section, he focuses entirely on what he calls the fittingness of the incarnation. Now, when Aquinas speaks of fittingness, he's juxtaposing this term with necessity. So in other words, it's an event or action in theological in, in theology, is it strictly necessary or simply fitting? Uh, and so in the first two questions, he explores this query. First, he asks, is it fitting for God to become incarnate? So we know that God is good. This is one of the realities of his essence. Uh, God exists. He is the truth, the good, the beautiful, and the ground of being itself. He is So Aquinas argues that because of his great and perfect goodness, he desired to share his goodness in the highest manner possible to his creature, to show it in the highest manner possible. So St. Thomas concludes that it is, as he says, manifest that it was fitting that God should become incarnate. So even though uh, it's a tremendous mystery that God would condescend to become one of us, it was fitting because of his goodness. But what about necessary? Uh, Aquinas asked the question next, was it necessary for the restoration of the human race? So in part three of the Summa, question one, article two, in the said contra, he says, what frees the human race from perdition is necessary for the salvation of man. 
But the mystery of incarnation is such, according to John 3.16. God so loved the world as to give his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him may not perish, but may have life everlasting. Therefore, it was necessary for man's salvation that God should become incarnate. So because of the sin of Adam and Eve, it was necessary that God should become incarnate. As God, he can reconcile us to himself, and as man, he can do so on our behalf. Now, could he have done it another way? Sure. Uh, But the fact is, he did incarnate. He did do it this way. Uh, And Aquinas says that it is because of his great love, because of his goodness. So this leads to the next question. If there had been no sin, would God have become incarnate? And this, this question is one of my favorites to contemplate. It was actually the topic of a great conversation for me and my coworkers at lunch a couple of weeks ago. Because when you teach at a Catholic school, uh, a faithful Catholic school, there are really nerdy conversations going on at lunch. Anyway, in Romans, St. Paul shows us that all men were made sinners through the disobedience of Adam, and that it was through the one man, Jesus Christ, that many will be made righteous. In the first letter of the Corinthians, St. Paul says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Jesus Christ is thus the new Adam, uh, or is sometimes called the second Adam. As St. John Henry Newman wrote in, uh, in his hymn, Praise the Holiest in the Heights, in the height, rather, uh, he says this. He says, O loving wisdom of our God. When all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. And so we see here this, uh, <clears throat> this usage of this word second Adam, this phrase. So it's clear that scripture teaches that the reason for the incarnation is the sin of Adam. So how does Aquinas answer this question? If there had been no sin, would God have become incarnate? Well, he says this, he says, The word of incarnation was ordained by God as a remedy for sin, so that had sin not existed, incarnation would not have been. But he goes on, he says this, and yet the power of God is not limited to this. Even had sin not existed, God could have become incarnate. Uh, So he leaves himself a bit of a a trap door or an escape hatch, right? He doesn't pin himself down to one answer or another on this one. So God could have become incarnate, even in the absence of human sin. But as it is, Adam did sin, and the incarnation allowed for the stain of original sin to be washed away. But what about personal sin, or as the church calls it, actual sin? St. Thomas asks, whether God became incarnate in order to take away actual sin rather than to take away original sin. And he answers directly that the principal reason for the incarnation was to take away original sin. But he adds this. He says, it is certain that Christ came into the world not only to take away that sin, which is handed on originally to posterity, but also in order to take away all sins subsequently added to it, not that all are taken away. So in other words, the incarnation allows for the forgiveness of sins for all, But as he says, not that all are taken away. And this is the idea in the Mass when uh, the words of Jesus are said of the Last Supper over the chalice. This is the chalice of my blood shed for you and for many. Right? Because not everyone is going to accept this gratuitous gift. 
So the next question comes up, whether it was fitting that God should become incarnate in the beginning of the human race. So now Aquinas is going to look at the beginning of the human race or the end of the world. Okay. Aquinas has a lot to say, um, but I'll summarize it with this. And this is from uh, question one, article five in the said country. He says, God became incarnate at the most fitting time. And it was not fitting that God should become incarnate at the beginning of the human race. So that's that. But in God's timing, the incarnation was unfitting to happen right after the sin of Adam and Eve. But St. Thomas asks whether incarnation ought to have been put off till the end of the world. And he answers this. He says, it is written. And then he quotes from Habakkuk 3.2. In the midst of the years, thou shalt make it known. Therefore, the mystery of incarnation, which was made known to the world, ought not to have been put off to the end of the world. So put simply, the incarnation happened exactly when and where was best in God's providence and with his perfect knowledge and planning. So now we'll we'll move on from the work of of St. Thomas on the fittingness of the incarnation. And we'll look at the effects of the incarnation on Christ himself, on Jesus Christ. So the incarnation of Christ was fitting and necessary for the salvation of man. But what were the effects on Christ himself? So we can first think of our own body and soul, right? We are limited. We are finite. We have inclination to sin. We have imperfections. We are sinful and sorrowful. We are intrinsically good and we're capable of wonderful things by God's grace, but we're also capable of great evil. As we discussed last time, the human nature of Jesus Christ is perfect and perfectly subordinate to his divinity. So he's incapable of sin and he acts in the perfection for which mankind was originally made. So what does that look like? Right? Perfection. Living in accord with the will of the Father perfectly. And, and what, is, what is possible? Right? The great Athanasius discussing the incarnation says this of, of the possibility of perfection. He says, And in a word, the achievements of the Savior resulting from his becoming man are of such kind and number that if one should wish to enumerate them, he may be compared to the men who gaze at the expanse of the sea and wish to count its waves. For as one cannot take in the whole of the waves with his eyes, for those which are coming on baffle the sense of him that attempts it. So for him that would take in all the achievements of Christ in the body, it is impossible to take in the whole, even by reckoning them up, as those which go beyond his thought are more than those he thinks he has taken in. Better is it then not to aim at speaking of the whole where one cannot do justice even to a part, but after mentioning one more to leave the whole for you to marvel at for all alike are marvelous. And wherever a man turns his glance, he may behold on that side, the divinity of the word and be struck with exceeding great awe. So the, the incarnation, it's a miracle. It's our blessed Lord is a perfect Man, right? He shows us what God intended from the beginning of mankind for you and for me. Peter Kreeft said that Jesus is probably the only sane man to ever live, and we're all some version of insane. Right? He shows us what God intended from the beginning. So let's let's take a moment to zoom in. What what effects did the incarnation have on the human body and the human soul 
of Christ. Well, Jesus Christ had a human body as we do. He knows our human limitations and is like us. In Hebrews 4.15, we hear, we have not a high priest who cannot have compassion on our infirmities, but one tempted in all things like as we are without sin. So before his resurrection from the dead, the body of Christ was subject to all the bodily weaknesses caused by original sin, which we are all subject. He experienced hunger and thirst, pain, fatigue, and even death. These are all natural results of human nature, which he assumed. And there's a couple of things in the body, however, which Christ didn't necessarily experience. So it's possible that he had no bodily deformities, right? When Isaiah speaks of there's no comeliness about him, he's speaking about the passion. He's speaking about the suffering servant. So there's no bodily deformities in Christ prior or before the passion. And it's also possible and likely that he never got sick. Right? St. Athanasius persuasively argues this by saying that it would be, quote, unbecoming that he should heal others who was himself not healed. So imagine that, Jesus not getting a cold or the flu. But when speaking of the human soul of Christ, there's a few areas worth mentioning. His intellect, will, sanctity, and likes and dislikes. So let's begin first in the will. Jesus was entirely sinless, right? we've already covered this, but Thomas following after St. Thomas Aquinas, as well as Francisco Suarez and the society of Jesus, the Jesuits all argue that sin is incompatible with the hypostatic union. That's why Jesus is sinless. And it's safe to assume that this is the case simply on the merits of Dominicans and Jesuits actually being in agreement on something. Now it's just a joke kind of. Um, but those following the teaching of uh, John Duns Scotus say that the sinlessness of Christ is not due to the hypostatic union, but due to a special divine providence similar to the way that it's impossible for the blessed in heaven to sin. So no matter which theological avenue you take, it is an article of faith to be held definitively taught at the Council of Ephesus that Christ never sinned. Jesus Christ is a divine person and God cannot turn away from himself. We also want to take great care to acknowledge the total liberty of Christ in his human will. After the incarnation, the will of Christ remained his human will. And if this were not the case, then in the matter of death, Christ couldn't have merited nor satisfied the justice of God for us. St. Thomas Aquinas not only believed in the total liberty of the human will of Christ, but he also provided 17 different explanations for why it's true. So let's move from the will of Christ to the intellect. Every time the feast of the baptism of the Lord comes around, I sort of, I have to brace myself for the incredibly ridiculous homilies in which the deacon or priest or God help us bishops explain that it was at this moment that Christ realized his mission they hold that it was at the baptism of the Lord when the spirit descends like a dove that Christ receives his anointing grace and mission in his intellect. And I want to say unequivocally that this is heretical and nonsensical garbage. 
right? The soul of Christ was endowed with the beatific vision from the beginning of its existence. From the first moment in the womb of the blessed Virgin Mary, when the hypostatic union came into being, the human soul of Christ beheld the Godhead in its fullness and understood his place in the hypostatic union. So intimately connected to the divinity of, of, uh, the word of God. Like Adam and Eve as well, Jesus Christ had infused knowledge. So God, the father who is omniscient, right? Knows everything revealed many things to Jesus in his humanity all at once as needed. He also acquired human knowledge through his senses and imagination and the human soul of Christ had a beginning and is not therefore infinite as God is infinite, right? The human soul of Christ. Um, remember when we're talking about these things, we have to be very specific. Otherwise we can fall into some heretical traps, but by the grace of union, his human soul, his intellect and his will was most perfect and embraced the widest range possible. So from this first moment in the hypostatic union, Jesus Christ enjoyed the grace of union. And so we can speak of the sanctity of Christ, his holiness, as St. Augustine teaches uh, in his Joannine tract, number 108, he says, when the word was made flesh, then indeed he sanctified himself in himself. That is himself as man in himself as word. For that Christ is one person, both word and man, and renders his human nature holy in the holiness of the divine nature. So why is the human nature of Christ holy? Because it's so sanctified and union with the divinity. St. John also tells us in the prologue of his gospel that the word was full of grace. And so in the human soul of Christ, there's a fullness of sanctifying grace, the same grace of the sacraments that we receive at our baptism and in each and every one of the seven sacraments. And uh, so flowing from this, his, his intellect, his will, his sanctity. We can also speak of, uh, his likes and his dislikes, right? In the hypostatic union, Jesus Christ is fully God and he's fully man. And this glorious union, however, doesn't deprive the human soul of Christ of the human reality of likes and dislikes. There were certain foods that Jesus preferred. He likely had a favorite game or sport, a favorite joke or turn of phrase, a favorite way to recline at table that he found most comfortable. And the list goes on and on. Right, we see in the Gospels that Jesus Christ was angry, fearful, sad, happy, experienced the sensible affections of hope, desire, and joy. I mean, after all, he's like us in all things but sin. So his likes and his dislikes, however, this is important to note, were under complete control by his human will, subordinate, subordinated perfectly to his divine will. So how we speak about Christ matters, right? If we, if we want to avoid error, our words will never fully penetrate the deep mysteries of the person of Jesus Christ. But there are certain ways of phrasing things that are just plain wrong. In the last part of this two-parter, we focused on different Christological heresies that serve as an illustration of this. So how then can we speak about the interaction of deity and humanity in the divine person of Jesus Christ? Well, the church gives us the concept of the communicatio idiomatum, 
or the communication of properties or what's often called in theology, the communication of idioms. Now there are difficulties that require such a convention, right? What properties belong to Jesus in his human nature? What properties belong to his divine nature? And it's, is it possible that these properties are shared or mingled between the two natures? So Jesus did a lot of things physically, which are attributed to his divine power. For example, he healed the sick, forgave sins, walked on water, changed water into wine, rose from the dead. And so through Jesus Christ, the God-man did all of these things. Because of the communicatio idiomatum, we can safely say that God did all of these things. Right? We could say that God healed the sick. God walked on water. God changed water into wine. And we're not saying that the properties of Christ's divinity become the properties of his humanity or vice versa. They're already deeply united by grace. But we rightly say that these things, uh, say of these things because Jesus Christ, even in his humanity, is a divine person. So whatever's affirmed of the divine person the son of God, the word made flesh, Jesus Christ after the incarnation in his human or divine natures is attributed to that one person. This is why St. Ignatius of Antioch, for example, refers to the blood of God or the suffering of God. God, the father has no blood, nor did the, did God, the spirit suffer, but the eternal word of God, God, the son assumed flesh. So this is, why in Ephesus, Council of Ephesus, we can rightly say that Mary is the Theotokos, right? The God-bearer, rather than merely the Christotokos, the Christ-bearer. There's an excellent summary of the rules of the communication of idioms on uh, encyclopedia.com. Believe it or not, they actually do a good job of explaining this. And, and you can check that out there if you look in the show notes, uh, if you're interested in reading further on that. So there's a lot of specificity about how exactly does this come into play. All right. So now let's look at the adoration of the humanity of Christ. Right, the Greek word dulia in Greek refers to veneration. This is the type of respect that's due to the angels and to the saints on account of their holiness and closeness to God. The next step up would be hyperdulia which is a really fun word to say. And this is the preeminent veneration and devotion due to the Blessed Virgin Mary as Queen of Heaven. And finally, we would arrive at true worship or adoration, which in Greek is latria. Now, latria is due to God alone. In fact, giving latria to anyone other than God would be the grave sin of blasphemy, right? putting someone else as God. The Catholic Encyclopedia explains the human nature of Christ united hypostatically with the divine nature is adored with the same worship as the divine nature. We adore the word when we adore Christ, the man, but the word is God. The human nature of Christ is not at all the reason of our adoration of him. That reason is only the divine nature End quote. So we don't worship the human nature of Jesus Christ, but we affirm that because of the hypostatic union, the divinity and humanity of Christ cannot be separated. And most importantly, there's only one person in Jesus Christ, which is the divine word of God. 
So according to the whole person rather than the parts, we truly adore Jesus Christ, the God-man, with all the devotion, love, and worship due to Almighty God. And so finally, we come to the big question for us, especially as we head into Christmas. Why did the word of God become flesh and how did the incarnation affect us? So first, we need to acclaim, uh, along with the Nicene Creed, this phrase. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he came incarnate of the Virgin Mary and was made man. So the word became flesh for us, as the catechism says in 456, in order to save us by reconciling us with God. So Jesus Christ atoned for the sins of the world, both original and personal, and though he himself was without sin, and he did this in our place as the son of man, and he did this perfectly as the son of God. St. Gregory of Nyssa, one of the Eastern Church Fathers, explains this. He says, Sick, our nature demanded to be healed. Fallen, to be raised up. Dead, to rise again. We had lost the possession of the good. It was necessary for it to be given back to us. Closed in the darkness, it was necessary to bring us the light. Captives, we awaited a savior. Prisoners, help. Slaves, a liberator. Are these things minor or insignificant? Did they not move God to descend to human nature and visit it, since humanity was in so miserable and unhappy a state? Very well said by St. Gregory of Nyssa, Church Father. So why did the incarnation happen? What is the effect on us? Well, first and foremost, he came in order to save us. Second, the Son of God incarnated that we might know God's love. As St. Thomas Aquinas taught, it was fitting that God should uh, become man in order to show us the depths of his love and the heights of his goodness. The incarnation is a tremendous miracle and a mystery. The fact that Almighty God containing all things and yet uncontained himself became a baby. I mean, just think about that this Christmas. It's very easy because we have nativity scenes. Interesting side note, it seems like every Christian becomes a Catholic uh, on Christmas. Even the Protestants have nativities. Uh, Anyway, coming back. Uh, He depended on the love and care of his holy mother and St. Joseph, right? He's a baby. He, He relies on them for everything. And in this unfathomable humility, the Lord shows us the lengths God was willing to go to in order to bring us back from sin and death. And of course, we see his loving action on full display, bearing the cross for our sakes. As it says in John fifteen thirteen, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. Third, Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, shows us the model for holiness. By his holy example, we can follow him in all things. He is, of course, the way, the truth, and the life. There's an old blessing that speaks of discipleship, and it's, it's something like this. May you be covered in the dust of the master. So by following so near to Jesus, we're covered in the dust, which his holy feet kick up as he leads us on the way. And if we listen to his holy words and his holy example, we'll be beckoned closer to sharing eternal life with him in heaven. 
right? Going back to that first reason for the incarnation, he came in order to save us that we might know God's love and to be our model for holiness. And quoting from the church fathers, God became man so that man could become God, right? And so, so he came, this is our, our fourth reason for the incarnation to make us partakers of the divine nature, to divinize us. What the, what the Eastern church would call theosis, right? St. Peter begins his second letter in this way. This is from second Peter one, three to four. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own example, his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So the chief of the apostles, the first Pope reveals to us another reason why the word became flesh. He came to make us partakers of divine nature. Right? As St. Irenaeus said in Adversus Heresis, for this is why the word became man and the son of God became the son of man. So that man, by entering into communion with the word and thus receiving divine sonship, might become a son of God. The great Athanasius, St. Athanasius, put it even more succinctly. He said, for the son of God became man so that we might become God. Unless we think that this notion is peculiar to the first millennium, St. Thomas Aquinas said, the only begotten son of God wanting to make us sharers in his divinity assumed our nature so that he made man might make men gods. And then finally, the primary means of receiving sanctifying grace in our soul, this grace to make us sharers in the divine nature is through the sacrament of baptism, right? That first door into the sacramental life where God comes to dwell within us as in a temple. We receive an infusion of the divine life and we, we receive these theological virtues of faith and hope and charity, right? To live as God is, to see others as, as God sees them, to, to see our future and have faith in the things of the Catholic faith, to hope in what is, is unseen, in what God has promised to us. This initiation, this grace, this sanctifying grace begun in baptism is perfected and strengthened in the sacrament of confirmation. And our initiation is complete when we receive the Lord's own body and blood in the Holy Eucharist, the sacrament of sacraments, right? The same flesh born of Mary, the word of God incarnate, comes to us under the veil of a sacrament at Holy Mass and what looks like bread and what looks like wine, but this is no ordinary food. It is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ who desires to make himself our super substantial bread and come into intimate communion with us. God became man so that man could become like God. And this foretaste of heaven leads us as a pledge of future glory to our eternal home. God desires so deeply to unite with us. He wants to come to us even in the form of food with that great humility. As St. Thomas wrote in one of his hymns, Oh, sublime humility. Oh, humble sublimity. The incarnation goes beyond the cave in Bethlehem 
beyond the home in Nazareth, beyond the temple in Jerusalem, beyond the wood of the cross and beyond the empty grave. In the sacraments, especially the Holy Eucharist, the incarnation is extended. Just as we are body and soul, the Lord commanded that his church should be visible and invisible. Our invisible God has taken on visible flesh, and so too the church celebrates in sensible signs the invisible wonders of God's overwhelming grace. The most amazing part of all of this is that he invites us to respond and to take part in these saving mysteries and realities. Praise be to God for such a gift. So as we enter into Christmas, especially if you've been away from the church for any reason, I invite you to take another look, realize what God has done in the incarnation 2000 years ago and how this is extended to today. And how do we receive this grace? Well, primarily it's through the sacraments, through baptism and confirmation, which leads us to Eucharist, the Holy Mass. St. Padre Pio said that the world could sooner exist without the sun than without the Holy Mass. And he's right. And so if you've been away from the church for any reason, come back. If you are lackluster in your attendance on Sundays, make that a goal. Make that the only goal before anything else. Get to Mass on Sundays and on Holy Days of Obligation. Make sure that you are living a life that is following Christ our incarnated Lord, the God-man. I'll end with a simple exhortation from Pope St. Leo the Great. He says, Christian, remember your dignity. And now that you share in God's own nature, do not return by sin to your former base condition. Bear in mind who is your head and of whose body you are a member. Do not forget that you have been rescued from the power of darkness and brought into the light of God's kingdom. I hope you all enjoyed this episode. I hope that you learned something. I hope it inspired you. And uh, as we enter into Christmas more deeply, uh, pray for me, and I'll pray for you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, now and ever and forever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.